Please take your Bibles and turn them to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians should be about six, seven, or eight books into your New Testament. If I had time to do the song in my head, I could tell you exactly how many. First Corinthians. Please turn to chapter six. I'd like to ask that we read just one and a half verses. Let's begin reading 1 Corinthians 6, the last five words of verse 19. The last five words of verse 19 into verse 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we wish to think rightly about our lives. We wish to think according to your word and according to your thoughts. We wish that we would have the mind of Christ. We pray that you would help us this morning to see our lives as you see them, as belonging not to us but to you. Please, Lord, we ask that you would direct our steps and guide us into the way that we should go. We pray that you would show us how to live through the glory of the Lord Jesus. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. amen. In 1646, uh, England was enveloped in a civil war. It was the first and only civil war in England's history. Uh, the conflict pitted Charles I, King Charles I, and those loyal to the monarchy against the parliamentary forces, uh, led first by the Earl of Essex and then by the much better known Oliver Cromwell and his new model army. Uh, Charles I, the king, had fled London in 1642 in fear of his life. He would eventually lose the war and be executed in London in 1649, uh, ushering in a period of roughly a decade known as the Interregnum, uh, where there was no king on the throne in England, the only period in England's history where there's been no king or queen on the throne. Oliver Cromwell would serve in these years as Lord Protector of England, they called him. As the nation was facing a radical new existence, one without a king or a queen on the throne for the first time in its history, urgent and important issues began to be debated. Matters of statecraft, law and order, republicanism, representative government, and other related subjects became matters of earnest discussion and consideration. And all wondered in this new situation, this new arrangement, what kind of government would the nation pursue? Similarly, what role the church would play in this new arrangement was not clear either. England was a Christian nation after all. For the previous century, the nation had been wrenched violently back and forth between Roman Catholicism and then English Protestantism and then Elizabethan Protestantism, a party known as the Puritans who had endured hostility from the government and the state church throughout the previous century, all of a sudden found itself the leading religious party in England during the Civil War and the Interregnum. They were aligned with the parliamentary forces. 
And these Puritans, who had never enjoyed public favor up until that point, were finally given the authority to design the church according to their beliefs and what they understood the scriptures to teach. So in 1646, in London, a group of over 100 Puritan divines were convened at Westminster Abbey and tasked to write a new confession for the church in England. They would produce a document known today as the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, my brother Thane Heisson and I, I don't see Thane right now, he and I technically trespassed earlier this year to get a peek at the room where that confession uh, was written and we were sternly reprimanded by a nice older English lady. <laughs> Alongside this document, the Westminster Confession of Faith, they would produce concise guides to the faith known as the Westminster Larger Catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Catechisms were produced by almost every major church and every major denomination around the Reformation era and beyond. And the purpose of a catechism, a catechism is a little book that presents the Christian faith in question and answer form. A catechism would have served uh, kind of like as the Sunday school curriculum for kids, and it would have served as the primary document in any kind of new members class. Uh, If they had those kinds of things 300, 400 years ago, we have a new members class, we go through certain things. These churches would use catechisms. Uh, to disciple their people. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, as its name suggests, would be the shortest and most concise explanation of the faith designed to help people grasp the basics. The Church of England, as it was, was over as far as they're concerned. The Puritans are writing this document from scratch. And I want to imagine that you are asked to meet among the theologians and the pastors who are going to write this charter document for the church in England. Where would these Puritans begin? What would be the very first question and answer? Uh, Would they begin with a statement about the Bible? Uh, That's where I think I would have started, what I would have recommended. Uh, But no, they did not start with a statement about the Bible. That would wait for question number two. What about a statement about God? They don't start with a statement about God. That would have to wait until question number four. What about a statement about creation? Go to the beginning, right? Uh, That would wait until question number nine. Uh, What about a statement about Christ? Uh, That would wait until question 21. What about justification by faith? We don't get that until question 33. Now, when the Puritans thought about how to best begin their most concise articulation and explanation of the faith, they began with this question. What is the chief end of man? For what purpose do we exist? What is the chief end of man? And they supply this answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This morning I'd like to preach a topical sermon. And in this sermon I wish to do two things primarily. Number one, I wish to vindicate the first part of that answer. I wish to show from the Bible that man's chief end is to glorify God. And secondly, I want to try to help Christians here to do that better. Namely, that we would live our lives, all of our lives, for God's glory. As a matter of habit and discipline, I try not to turn your attention to multiple texts when I preach. I try to keep this in one passage. The reason for that is I think if you turn to too many texts, it can fatigue the listener and maybe distract I'm going to break that general rule this morning. I need you to turn to these texts. 
Now, most of them will be in 1 Corinthians and Romans. So you might want to put your finger there. Already you're in 1 Corinthians 6, okay? Most of the texts we'll turn to are in 1 Corinthians and Romans. From my outline this morning, I'd like to present us with three simple foundational biblical principles concerning the Christian life, and then I'd like to help us apply them. Point number one, the great aim of the Christian life is to glorify God. The great aim of the Christian life is to glorify God. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you will know that it teaches that absolutely everything is meant to redound to the glory of God. The glory of God is the central purpose, end, and goal of everything, of the universe, of the entire cosmos, of all of history, of creation, of redemption, of judgment, of this world and the world to come. God has set the worship, adoration, and magnification of His glory as the central goal of everything. Uh, This is a point so obvious and so pervasive in the Scriptures that I won't bother to pause and have us turn to all the passages that bear it out. But I could supply you with literally hundreds of texts, and there are books I could give you, at least hundreds of texts that bear out this point. I appreciate the way Jonathan Edwards puts it. He says, quote, the great end of God's works which is so variously expressed in Scripture, is indeed but one. And this one is most properly and comprehensively called the glory of God. He says the great singular end and purpose of everything is the glory of God. It is why you and I exist. It is why you were born to the parents you were born to. It is why the sun came up this morning. It's why we have four seasons instead of three or five. It's why the stock market will do whatever it will do in 2024. It's why Joe Biden is the current president and indeed every single world leader is in their position of authority. It's why the history books read as they do. Everything will be made to redound to the glory of God. But now I'm narrowing the focus of this massive biblical principle and applying it particularly to the Christian life. That is how Christians are to live. I'm applying it to you and to me and how we should live our lives, we who are the people of God. I'm not talking now about God's glory in creation, in providence, or even in the gospel. I'm talking about God's glory as the aim and focus of the lives of the Lord's people, of your life and my life, how we live. And I'm saying the great aim of the Christian life is to glorify God. Again, numerous texts I could turn our attention to. I'm going to turn us to three, all in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In the section of Scripture I had you turn to, Paul is addressing uh, the issue of sexual immorality that was being practiced, was maybe even prevalent among many of the members of the church in Corinth. Uh, And Paul will say an outrage at one point in verse 15. Uh, How can you join what belongs to Christ to a harlot, to a prostitute? Shall you who have been joined to Christ join yourself to a prostitute? He says, never. It's unthinkable. It can't be that we would live in sexual immorality as the people of God. And then he brings them to a principle to cement the point on how they're to use their bodies and think about their sexuality in relation to God. It's in verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
He calls them to sexual purity and to conscious decisions about how they will use their body by reminding them of this great aim and organizing principle for their lives. Namely, you Corinthian Christians, you live for God's glory. Your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. It was purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and therefore you're not free to use your body in any way that you see fit. Remember, you belong to God. And your body, down to who you go to bed with, is to be used for the glory of God and have this focus, this aim, as the organizing principle. How will I live in the body? How will I function in the body? How will I use my body? Well, the uniting aim and theme, the goal, the target, is to use my body in ways that glorify God. And I just have to pause here to note how averse this idea is to the spirit of the age. We love to talk about our personal autonomy and liberty and freedom. Uh, Christians, you don't have autonomy. Uh, There's this sense, I get it, in which we're free in Christ, but we are said to be slaves of Christ, servants of Christ. Your body, your mind, your life belongs to God, bought by the price of Jesus' own blood, therefore glorify God in your bodies. Now turn to 1 Corinthians 8, if you would. So much I wish I could say about the context of 1 Corinthians 8. I have been on the verge of preaching a topical sermon from 1 Corinthians 8 like 10 times over the last year. Eventually, I hope I'll get around to it. We're just going to drop in for just a moment to see something Paul honestly says almost as an aside. 1 Corinthians 8, it'll be verse 6, I want you to turn. Very briefly, the context is whether or not the saints in Corinth should eat meat sacrificed to idols and how they should regard the differing stances on that question among the people of God there in Corinth, how they should think about that. Let's just pick up in verse 4. Paul goes out of his way to say that there's something wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols. Interestingly enough, he's going to give up eating meat himself. But he says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It's just that latter statement in verse 6 I want us to note. When Paul is talking to them about how to think about meat sacrifice to idols, one of the things he notes is you exist for God. Now, you don't belong to yourself, you belong to Him. We exist for Him and His glory. The uh, last text is a well-known text in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Here in the context, Paul is dealing with matters of conscience and matters of Christian liberty, whether or not to uh, eat these foods or drink this particular drink or observe these particular days. And he's trying to instruct the believers on how they're to think about these matters. And he supplies them with a principle, an aim that is to regulate how they think about Christian freedom and Christian liberty, uh, down to what they eat and what they drink. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So what do we see Paul doing? When Paul wants to tell the Corinthians how and how not to use their bodies and how to think about their sexuality, he reminds them that their great aim is to be the glory of God. 
When the matter of this problem in the Corinthian context of eating meat sacrificed to idols comes up, he reminds them that they exist for God and his glory. When this issue of Christian liberty arises, what one should eat or drink and how one should view his or her life and the gifts God gives men and women freely to enjoy, he reminds them everything you do, down literally to what you pull out of the refrigerator and the drink in your glass, is to be for the glory of God. That is to be the great aim. The simple point I wish to make is this, with everything that I have, with everything that I am, with everything that I do, I am to make God's glory the great aim of my life. In everything, we who are the people of God are to glorify the Lord. Uh, In our families, in our vocations, in all our relationships, in our entertainments, our recreations, and how we use our time, and how we use our money, in what we eat, and what we drink, in what we put on, in literally everything. Our great aim is to bring glory to God. God's glory is to become the north star that guides all of our lives. It is to become what the French call a raison d'etre, our reason for being. What is your reason for being, Christian? Your reason for existence your reason for walking in the pilgrim way. It is to live for the glory of God. Point number two. Point number one is that the great aim of the Christian life is to glorify God. Point number two, the Christian is called to a complete surrender of his life to God to be used for his purposes. The Christian is called to a complete surrender of his life to God to be used for his purposes. Please turn to Romans chapter 12. The book of Romans just a a book back in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, I'd like to ask that we read two verses. Verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12.1, if you know the book of Romans, is a transitional text in the book. Paul is turning from doctrine to practice, from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. After 11 chapters of extolling God's work in the gospel and eternity past and in redemptive history, He then turns to these Christians, these Roman Christians, and he calls them to a response. And what does he tell them? Again, look at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, surrender your entire life to God as a sacrifice to serve Him and His glory. You would be familiar, hopefully, that in the Old Testament, the people of God would offer sacrifices as an expression of worship and devotion to God. And the Israelites were called to offer their best, their best bull, their best lamb, their best goat, or the first fruits of their harvest. King David famously said, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord that cost me nothing. Well, here in Romans 12, Paul is saying, though the old covenant is ended... Christ has come, the new covenant has been inaugurated, my people are nonetheless still called to worship. 
still called to offer sacrifices. But the sacrifice won't be a burnt offering. The sacrifice will be your life given in service and worship to God. The sacrifice won't be a dead lamb. It will be a living soul. It will be an entire life. This, Paul says, is your spiritual worship. To present yourself to God, holy and acceptable, as an expression of your total devotion to Him. You see that in this passage. We are to surrender ourselves, all of ourselves, our entire lives, to God for His worship and His glory. Friends, God gets all of me. He gets my whole life. He gets my dreams, my expectations, my hopes, and my plans. He gets my time, my minutes and my hours, my months and my years. He gets my relationships, my love life, my marriage, my children. He gets all my resources. He gets my money, my retirement, my house. He gets my talents and gifts. He gets my physical strength. He gets my mental and intellectual abilities. Everything I have and everything that I am is surrendered to Him to serve His purposes and His glory. Friends, remember this. The Christian life will allow for no compartments. You don't get to compartmentalize your life. Over here is churchy life and stuff I give to God. Over here is the compartment for like work. And over here is the compartment for family. And over here is the compartment for pleasure and recreation and things like that. No compartments in the Christian life. God doesn't just get the best of us. He gets all of us. He gets everything that I am, everything that I have. And listen, Paul is saying in Romans 12 that this requires an active, volitional, self-conscious surrender of ourselves to God. I must present my body. I must present my life, myself, to God, and I'm to tell Him I am yours. You get everything. I hold nothing back but surrender everything I have, everything I am, and everything I will ever be to your worship and your glory. Point number three, the third principle for the Christian life. We've seen the great aim of the Christian life is to glorify God. See, secondly, the Christian is called to a complete surrender of his life to God to be used for his purposes. Thirdly, Christ and his interests are to govern and direct the Christian's life. Christ and his interests are to govern and direct the Christian's life. Turn, if you would, just a page or two over to Romans 14. This is the last text I'll have you turn to, Romans 14. Again, I wish I could share a bunch about the context. We're not expounding this passage. I just briefly mentioned again, matters of conscience are in view. The matters of what days to observe is holy, what foods to eat. How are you going to decide? Paul says you will decide by weighing it against a principle. You're to remember that you're to do everything in your life as unto the Lord, he will say. And then we read verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. My agenda, my happiness, is not the North Star. It's not the great aim. I'm not living unto myself. I don't get to set the agenda for my life. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, We die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 
For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. In other words, I don't get to have my own little personal agenda for my life. The agenda for my life is set by Jesus, who is the Lord. His kingdom, his mission, his concerns, his desire, his glory, determine my to-do list, determine my calendar, determine my ambitions and aspirations, determine my life. He is my Lord, and his commands, his promises, his interests, his purposes and plans for me will determine how I will live. And Paul will make numerous other statements like this. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Christ. Colossians 3, verse 4, he reminds the Colossians, Christ is your life. He says in Philippians 1:21, for me to live is Christ. Paul is saying that for the Christian, Christ's lordship, his aims, his interests, his commands, his purposes must become central and definitive for my life. What are revealed to be Christ's interests and desires and plans and purposes for our lives in his word? We don't have to wonder about that. Lots of things. He desires that I turn from my sin and that I trust in him, becoming his follower. That's his purpose and plan for me. So then my life will have as one of its distinct goals forsaking my sin and following Jesus faithfully. He desires that I give myself to obeying his commands. Then I will give myself to obeying his commands. He desires that I continually grow in holiness and in maturity and in Christ-likeness. Then my life will have, as one of its main aims, continual growth and progress in these things. He desires that through the church, the local church, I participate in the advancement of his kingdom and of his great commission in the world. He desires that I engage in hospitality and good works that are practically helpful for people. He desires that I give myself to the means of grace, to prayer, and to his word, and to fellowship. He desires that I become an agent in the spiritual growth and health and progress of my brothers and sisters around me. You see the point. Christ and his interests govern and direct the affairs of my life. He shapes my to-do list. He's in charge of my calendar. His name is on my bank account. He is my master and my Lord. No one else is permitted to exercise such a controlling influence over my life, not even myself. I don't get to come up with the agenda for my life. He does. He tells me what my priorities will be. He tells me how I will live. He will tell me the great aims and objects that I am to pursue, what the goals and purposes and ends of my life ought to be. For none of us lives to himself, And none of us dies to himself, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. For me to live is Christ. In the minutes that remain, I'd like to bring before us a few points of application. There's three basic principles for the Christian life how we're to live our lives with this great aim of glorifying God and making his interests central to our lives. I want to help us work this out in our own lives, okay? Three points of application. The first will be where we spend the most time. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you 
seek to develop a vision for your life that has as its grand aim the maximization of the glory of God in your life. Seek to develop a vision for your life that has as its grand aim the maximization of the glory of God in your life. Christian here this morning, what are you doing with your life? What is the goal and end of all of this? How you've been living? Why do you keep waking up? Uh, Where is all of this headed? What are your goals and your aims? What is the end of this life you're living? Do you have answers to those questions? Is your life being shaped and driven by a cohesive vision for why you exist? What is your raison d'etre? What's your reason for being, your reason for existing? What's the goal of your life? What's the goal of your education that you're pursuing? The goal of your work? your relationships, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, why you're living here and not somewhere else, why you're a member of this church and not a part of another church, why are you giving yourself to the things that you're giving yourself to, what is the ultimate end and aim of your life? And we know the proper Christian answer to that question. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Is that the grand aim and organizing principle of your entire life? Is your life structured and shaped by a vision for seeing God maximally glorified in you, in your family, in your vocation, in supporting the work of the church, through good works, in prayer, in hospitality, in love and service to others, in doing things for Christ and His kingdom, in supporting the work of missions, in evangelizing people in your immediate sphere. you got to have a vision for your life. It'll just all become amorphous and aimless, just sort of passing through each day. No particular aim, no particular goal. You've heard me say it before. If you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. You don't aim at anything, you won't do anything. You've got to have a vision for your life, a plan. Where am I going? What am I doing? And if you don't have it, you'll just drift. You'll be thrown about the victim of all the circumstances that surround you. And the reason you will be where you are in life is the circumstances just kind of bounced you around. Do you know the illustration about the passive purple four ball on the billiard table? You have the billiard balls and there's the passive purple four ball. The purple four ball doesn't get to control what it does. It's just beat around by the other balls and the cue ball and the cue stick. You don't want to be like a passive purple four ball. Why did it in this pocket, not that one? Like the circumstances just pushed me there. It's kind of battered me around, and that's why I've ended up where I've ended up. The Bible, friends, gives us the tools to begin constructing a vision for our lives. Now, it will look different for different people, and it must be submitted to God's providence and His sovereignty. But if we are faithful to the word, it will have the same central aim for each one of us. The glory of God in all that we are and all that we do. And this great priority will begin to shape everything in our lives. 
It will start to shape and drive our decisions. It will produce a kind of holy momentum in our lives towards some object and some goal. It will affect how we use our time. It will awaken in us a glorious sense of purpose and drive and vision. I'm living for something, for the glory of God. It's such a simple idea, such a biblical idea, but so important. And yet so many Christians, you'd have no sense, no sense that they're thinking about this at all. That they're living according to any kind of vision for their lives. They're just aimless. Why'd you take that job? I don't know. Paid more money. I'm good at it. Why did you choose to stop at three kids? Why are you homeschooling or not? Why do you invest your money in that way? Why does the calendar look the way it looks for you, for your family? Why choose that major and not another? I fear that lots of Christians just sort of pile up a bunch of little incidental decisions with no sort of guiding framework or vision. They sort of end up in this space. There was no vision driving what they were doing. No kind of cohesive framework. No goal or aim of living for God and His glory. What happens is that over 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, it becomes evident that they're just living aimlessly and just doing random stuff. A couple of illustrations from the DePrima household. A negative example from my wife, a negative example from me. When I leave the house to go somewhere, if my family's awake, I will say goodbye to my kids, I'll kiss my wife, and I walk out the door, and as I'm walking out the door, I am typing in to the GPS the address of where I need to go. Maybe I'm calling the person that I'm supposed to be meeting with to make sure they'll be there at my destination. And the goal, when I open that car door, is to be in reverse in under 2.7 seconds, pulling out of the driveway on my way, because I'm going somewhere. Not so with my wife, okay? Uh, Jenna will leave the house, and she'll go to the car, And then three minutes later, five minutes later, seven minutes later, she's still there in the driveway. Husbands, do your wives do this? I'll say goodbye to her. I'm prepared. She's going to leave. And she's just sitting in the car. I don't know, doing her quiet time or just enjoying a moment in silence or texting a friend. I don't know what she's doing. And it doesn't get any better when she's out there on the road. You'd have no sense my wife is trying to get to her destination by the way that she drives. She's sort of coasting, right? Negative example for me. Uh, My wife is a very good planner, very gifted administratively, great with a to-do list. And man, she goes to Costco and she could have three kids in tow and what she accomplishes is like amazing to me. She gets everything and almost never am I reaching for something in my house and it's not there. She's just so good at supplying our house with everything that's needed. If you send me to the grocery store, that's a hopeless effort, right? How cliche is this, right? Women in driving and men in the grocery store. But what do I do when I go to the grocery store? I don't have a list. I have an amorphous idea that I need something. And I walk in and the first thing that meets me at Lowe's Foods is the, uh, the fall display. Oh, look at that. They're putting pumpkin in marshmallows. They really put pumpkin into everything, don't they? What's in a marshmallow after all? I don't really know. And before long, I'm just aimless. I'm not, 
What was I here for? I'm just aimlessly wandering through this store subject to whatever distraction throws itself at me, okay? Friends, on a serious note, these are funny stories, but that's how a lot of people walk through the Christian life. Aimless. No sense of purpose. Distracted by the next thing. Forgetting why they came, what they're doing, what they're living for. There's no goal, there's no object, there's no destination, there's no vision, and their life just becomes this blob of nothingness. And their life is just a pile of incidental decisions with no cohesive vision, no plan. Christian, I urge you, stop and think about your life and consider how can I live for the glory of God? What should I be giving myself to? What initiatives? What plans? What ministries? How will I use my gifts and my time and my resources? Develop a vision for your life that has as its central organizing aim the maximizing of the glory of God in your life. Spouses, you should be talking about this to one another. How can we live for God's glory? Can we do better? Can we rearrange things? Are we squeezing out all the juice of this one life that we get? Husbands, you have a special responsibility here. What are we doing, dads? Where are we headed? What's the vision? What's the plan? Cast some vision for your family. Hold before them a plan for how you could be living for the glory of God. Wives, don't just sit there aimlessly swiping around on the phone or dabbling in this and that or fluttering about between half-baked plans and never doing anything for Jesus. Think about your life. Take yourself in hand. Govern your thoughts and your minds by the help and grace that God supplies and live for the Lord. See, so lead your kids and your grandkids and your friends and your relations in honoring God with your life. Christians, brothers and sisters here, members of this church, you should be talking about this with one another. You should be talking about this in each other's homes or in your small groups or around the dinner table. Hey, how can we live for the glory of God? How are we doing? Hey, y'all tell me, what do you see in me? What, what could I be doing in my life that would honor the Lord? You know, and I've noticed this in you, and I think you could live this way. I think you could do this for the Lord. I see this in you. Let's be living for God's glory and stimulating and encouraging one another in this pursuit of living for the Lord. I'm begging you, brothers and sisters, don't just do stuff. Don't just do the next thing. Consider, reflect, think about it, ask, how can I best glorify God with my life? Make a plan, develop a vision, and take steps to pursue it. Now, I'm being disciplined in not over-prescribing what that vision should look like, because it's not going to be the same for everybody. And I don't want to impose some kind of legalistic standard on how everyone in the church is supposed to be living. But I can tell you on the basis of God's word, all of us should be thinking this way. How can I best honor God with my life? I'll just illustrate this with my own life. I was thinking about this, was able to be at Marge's memorial service a couple of days ago. Uh, Marge, I think Debbie was born in 1934, is that right? It's extraordinary, she lived to be nearly 90. And I started thinking, Okay, I'm in my early 30s, so what year would I be in if I was born in 1934? It would be 1967. If I live to be as old as Marge, I have, what, 
57, 58 more years. Well, what am I going to do with them? I mean, I could die tomorrow, so I always want to be found living in a way that it would be a good day to die. I don't want to be found doing anything that would make me ashamed if the Lord found me today and called my number today. But if I get my 70, 80, 90 years, what am I going to do? Young people say YOLO, or when I was a young person, I said, YOLO, you only live once, you get one life, one life. If I live to be 80 or 90, a third of what I'm going to be judged for and held accountable for is in the rearview mirror. What am I going to live for in the years that are ahead? And my wife and I have endeavored to talk about this. How do we want to live in our 30s and in our 40s and in our 50s and in our 60s? And how can we best honor the Lord with each passing year, each passing decade? And you know what? Those conversations do shape practical decisions for us. It does shape our budget. Uh, it does shape uh, how many kids we try to have. It's in the Lord's hands. It does shape what we say yes to and what we say no to. It does shape what gets on the family agenda and calendar and what we don't allow to get on the family agenda and calendar because we're living for the glory of God. Now, I'm not sharing that to say we're some kind of model for how to do this, but I am sharing just to illustrate how a vision for your life and how you want to live for God's glory will begin to bleed down and impact the decisions that you make about everything. Friends, we're living for the glory of God. And may God help each one of us by His Word and through the help of the body of Christ and maybe good counselors and mentors and pastors to develop a plan for how we can live for God's glory. Second point of application, I'll be more brief on. Seek to make the glory of God the ultimate organizing principle in all your decision making. Seek to make the glory of God the ultimate organizing principle in all your decision making. I talk all the time as a pastor to people making big decisions. And I will often, at some point, usually at the beginning of the discussion, ask them this question. If Jesus Christ were sitting in the room now, what do you think he would encourage you to do? I think he has an opinion about what you should do. What do you think he would tell you to do? Remember, Christ and his interests are to govern my life. What, brother, sister, would most glorify God? And I'm so encouraged, so often that question's put out there. People, I've been thinking about that very thing. How can I best honor the Lord in this relationship? How can I best honor the Lord and whether or not to move my family uh, to Indiana or stay here? How can I best honor the Lord, this house or that house? How, how can I honor the Lord whether or not to say yes to being an elder or deacon in the church or, 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 or whether or not to stay in the sphere that I'm in? Sometimes I will ask that question and it's just this sort of dazed look in people's eyes. Like that just never occurred to me to think about it that way. Friends, I want in this sermon to encourage us to begin thinking that way as a natural reflex. What would most honor the Lord? How can we best glorify God? How can we live for Him? Young people, what should ultimately determine what major you choose in college? Or whether or not you go to college? I don't know what major you should choose. I do know the aim, the organizing principle that should help you make that decision. It's how you can best honor and glorify God with your life.
Yes, often young people, you know, why, why did you choose this major? Well, because I, I like English. Well, I, I like English. I like video games. I like playing fantasy football. That's going to determine what I do for a major. No, that won't be a legitimate organizing principle for how we choose what we're going to do. Well, I'm good at math. Okay, so what? I'm not saying that your love of English or your skills in math can't become part of the framework. But again, don't just do stuff. Don't do things because your personality test or your big five, your Myers-Briggs or whatever says, well, you're this kind of person, so do this kind of a thing. You know, people, Jesus Christ is your Lord. He determines how you live your life. Ask yourself, with everything I've got, the gifts he's given me, the abilities he's given me, how could I best live for his glory? And I don't think that means all of you are going to become pastors and missionaries now. You might become engineers and accountants and school teachers. But it's a better decision if it's informed and governed by a concern for how you can glorify God with your life. You live for a reason, a purpose. You just end up here because some guidance counselor thinks I'm good at science. This is homesteading movement. You know what homesteading is? Homesteading is we're going to live off the land. There's a lot of people, they get to like midlife, and they think I'm going to go out and live on the land, and I'm going to move 25 minutes outside of town, and we're going to raise chickens, and we're going to have a garden and all that. Well, look, it might be fine to go and do that kind of thing. It's not fine to do that kind of thing if you say, well, we're just homesteading type of people. You're going to move your family 30 minutes outside of town, adopt this whole new life. Why? Because you like chickens. That's not a legitimate reason, like big life decisions. Are you living for the glory of God? Could, could the, the homesteading thing become a center for ministry and service to Christ and can it do good and yield blessing for the church and for the community? Will it help our family? Will it be good stewardship of our resources? Like these are real questions we need to be asking ourselves. And you may choose, yes, I would best honor God by moving my family 30 minutes out of town and raising chickens. Praise God. But don't do that because you saw Little House on the Prairie and thought that was quaint. If you're going to do it, do it because you're convinced. I'm not my own, remember. I belong to Him. I don't live unto myself. I'm living for Him. You must be convinced that glorifies the Lord. Are you going to take the promotion that will require you to move to this other location? I've talked to four or five men that just assumed it was their responsibility to just take whatever the highest paying job is. I'm not saying you shouldn't accept your promotion or a higher paying job, but why would you think that what should drive your life is simply that you're to climb the ladder as high as you can get? I was thankful for my own dad as he was climbing the ladder, had a pastor come to him and say, this might be too high for your family. You might want to make some personal sacrifices to do better in the home. This is good advice. You're approached about being an elder or a deacon in the church. What do you do? How do you decide? Well, how could I best honor the Lord? Would it be to serve in this office? Would it be better, though, if I, if I didn't? You're approached about taking a larger role of leadership in a particular ministry or with a particular group or to sit on a board or what have you. How will you decide? If you don't have an aim, if you don't have a grand goal, if you don't understand what your chief end is, what else will guide you? Lesser things. Seek to make decisions that have the glory of God in view. Third and final point, 
In a sense, I've already said this, I'm repeating myself at this point. Third and final point of application. Learn to view all your resources as belonging to God and useful for His purposes. Learn to view all your resources as belonging to God and useful for His purposes. You are not your own, you were bought with a price. I'm talking now about stewardship. What, what gifts has God given you? How much money you got in your bank account? What relationships are in your life? What opportunities are before you in the life of the church or in the community? What, what do you have? And how can you leverage it for the glory of God? And listen, you don't need to look over at other people what they've been given. You're responsible for what you have, what you've been given. You don't answer for someone else's lot. Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. One guy was given five talents, another guy two. They both invested everything they had and they brought a 100% return into the kingdom of heaven. And you know what? They both got the same reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You're not answerable for someone else's lot. You're answerable for what God has given you. Ask, maybe with the help of a good friend or a pastor, what has God given me? Who am I? What do I have? How can I live for his glory? I want to invest everything I have to honor him, to serve him, to live for his glory. How can I best do that? You must see all that you are and all that you have as given over and surrendered to God at his disposal for his use, for his worship. Uh, young people, I am so impressed uh, with uh, the gifts that God has given you. Uh, I think a lot of the kids of this church are going to rule the world. They're going to be running this country in 20, 30 years. It really is remarkable to me to talk to you, to hear how intelligent you are, and to see all the gifts that God has given to you. I'm appealing especially to those young people here now who are Christians, who know themselves self-consciously to be followers of Jesus. Those gifts and those advantages that God has given to you are not for you to just squander away and use for your own purposes. To whom much is given, much is required. You've been given so much, so much. Well, what will you do for Jesus? How will you live? for his glory, not to earn his favor or save your soul. You're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. But as his servants now have presented your lives to him, surrendered your all to Jesus, how will you live? Think about this and dream up a plan and a vision. Ask God to help you and to guide you and invite parents and pastors and teachers and youth workers and counselors into your life to help you think. I don't want to just live for myself. I want to live for the glory of Christ. Middle-aged people, older people, you're approaching maybe a new chapter. How should you live now in your 50s, in your 60s? What should you do with the empty nester phase? What should you do with the retirement years? It's not for you to just scurry off to Naples and play golf for the next 15 years. Nothing wrong with living in Naples, nothing wrong with playing golf. But to think that's how I'm going to sort of coast for the back nine. As I'm going to live my life in my retirement years, no, dream of something better. You have an opportunity. You have something before you. Live for the glory of King Jesus. Your resources may be less. Maybe you're on a fixed income. Your, your mental faculties, your emotional resources may be less than they used to be. You may not have as much energy and vigor. Okay, fine. Assess what you do have. Invest it all for Jesus. 
There are older women in this church and older men in this church that if you just commit yourself to a long obedience in the same direction, you will bring into heaven 50, 100, 150 spiritual sons and daughters. You may do your very best work in older age. True for so many of the saints in the Bible. It wasn't in their 20s or their 30s or their 40s that they did their greatest deeds for God. It was in their latter years. Maybe it'll be that way for you. I close with two questions. I'm nervous in a sermon like this that a subtle kind of legalism can enter our hearts where we think, okay, what matters now at the end of the day is that I, that I do for Jesus. And I better do for Jesus. And if I don't, I've wasted my life. My friend, you're not made right with God by doing for Jesus. You are saved, you're made right with God, you come into a standing of favor with God through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ and you have no other hope. It won't be through piling up good deeds or accomplishing big achievements or ambitions for Christ and his kingdom that will see you safely into heaven. It'll be what Christ and Christ alone has done. I want to speak now to those here, maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you think, you know what, I've not been living this way. I have squandered a lot of years. I have been living like I'm my own master. I haven't been living with this kind of aim and this vision to see God glorified in my life. What should you do? Brother, sister, you should go to God in repentance. And you should say, Lord, I've not been living as I should be living. I've not been the man or woman I ought to be. Please forgive me for years wasted. Would you please compensate through the merits of Christ for everything I've squandered? Please forgive me of all my sins and cleanse me from my failings. Then you should believe in your heart on the basis of God's word that he does forgive you. And then you should resolve by his grace, with his help, for his glory. God being my helper, I'm going to live better now. Some of you say, well, I'm in my 80s now. Okay, you're in your 80s. Live faithfully now. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Live as you want for the glory of God. And who knows that your final act may be your best in service to Christ. Just turn from sin. Confess your failings. Go to God and by his help live for his glory. Second question, final thing I'll say this morning. What if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian? What does all of this mean for you? I've been talking to Christians this morning. I've been talking about how God's glory is the great aim of the Christian life. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, well, you can't evade the question, what are you living for? So for you, what's the plan with all of this? What's the vision for your life? Where is all of this headed? What's the goal? Is it just to maximize your pleasure and then die? That's really what you're living for? Your plans, your ambitions, the things that you think are so important, how are those things working out for you? Are you living with any sense of purpose whatsoever? Is your life united and driving you toward some great and glorious vision? Or do you just keep sort of waking up day after day? 
just sort of passing through the days like water through a filter, water through a sieve. What are you living for? Uh, My friend, through the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross to redeem men and women from their sins and from themselves, he is pleased to raise us up and to make us sons and daughters of God, united to Christ through his blood, And he is pleased to give us a life and a purpose and a vision to live for his glory. And he will bring us into heaven one day to enjoy his glory forever and ever and ever in a place called paradise. I think you know that's what you're meant to be living for. And I appeal only to your conscience and call you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we would all do away with frivolous goals and frivolous aims and time wasters and distractions that enervate our lives and draw our affections and our energy and our time and our love and our devotion away from Christ and toward the passing and frivolous and ephemeral things of this world. Help us to live for the glory of God. Help us to see and to know we live not unto ourselves, but unto the Lord. Help us to be more awake and alive to your glory. Help us, Lord, to live with a sense of purpose and vision. Help us to glorify God in our mortal bodies. Help us to glorify him with what we eat and what we drink and everything that we do. Please, Lord, guide us into the future. May we not try to compartmentalize our Christian life, compartmentalize our commitment to you. Help us all through a self-conscious and willing surrender to give ourselves totally and completely to you. We want you to be our Lord. We want to walk according to your will. We want to take the next step at your command. We want Christ and his interests to govern our lives. Lord, would you help us all to live in ways that would honor and glorify him. Give us grace and help in this. And may we never be so confused as to think that by what we do, we could earn your favor. We know that is not true. Help us to rest always in what our Savior has done and out of love and devotion and worship to him, live lives for his glory. Pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.